Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In France, I'm sure many of you have seen this over the last couple of days, the biggest trial in modern French history concluded this week after nine months in a specially constructed and very secure court. Salah Abdeslam received what is in France a very rare full-life prison sentence for the role that he played in the November 13, 2015 terror attack on Paris that killed 130 people and saw hundreds more injured. You'll remember this particular attack, I'm sure. Restaurants, bars, the National Soccer Stadium were all attacked, and there was that just horrible massacre at the Bataclan Music Venue. Well, our guest was in France at the time of that 2015 attack. Dr. Christian Luprecht is back with us, professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. He's also the author of many books, including his most recent, Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, which is published by Oxford University Press. Christian, thank you very much for joining us. What are your memories of being in France in 2015 when that horrific terror attack took place? I think disbelief that something like this can happen in your own backyard, in your own neighborhood, in your own country. That these are sort of the, this, the violence that we had associated with other places in the world. And it was sort of a real um, reminder that th we live in a globalized world and that violent extremist ideology and that the threat at the time listeners might remember from the islamic state uh, in iraq and expansion into syria uh, was now attaining a, a global reach because of course the attackers as we subsequently learned most of them had fought uh, in syria or in iraq um, and clearly were desensitized to violence and and and, and were deeply socialized um, into uh, uh, into into a very dehumanizing ideology, and I think you know we, we when that happened that evening on November thirteenth, um, it, it it was uh, it was stunning that something of this scale, uh, this organized, could happen uh, in in France, despite the fact that France had long since the nineteen nineties um, and, and 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 the Algerian um, extremist attacks had long had a very robust anti terrorism posture. Yeah. Is that the reason that France was the target? or is a, Because France has been the target of other extreme terrorist attacks. Why? Yeah, France, of course, has always had a difficult historical relationship with uh, the Middle East and with North Africa uh, in particular. Um, and I think that relationship is certainly part of perhaps what, what motivated the uh, uh, the grievances that uh, uh, that played themselves out uh, in this particular case, um, but France also has a challenging relationship at home uh, with some minority groups. But of course, most people never resort to violence over their grievances, and I think in this particular case, it is the the connection that the attackers, um, who were mostly in origin from France and from Belgium, um, um, ultimately developed with the Islamic State, and I think it's it's a reminder that. Um, uh, we ultimately collectively um, need to understand that we live in a globalized world, that what happens in other places in the world 
um, it does affect us directly back here um, at home. And I think at the time there was sort of a sense that, you know, the Islamic State, that sort of it, it's cruel and it's, it's, it's violent, but it's sort of other people's problems. It's not our problem. And I think this for me very much was a reminder that not only is it our problem, it's also our responsibility to draw a line at the type of behavior that simply uh, no, no state can ever anywhere condone and that we have a collective responsibility um, and that if we don't realize that collective responsibility, uh, there are consequences. And I think the, the, um, um, it, it certainly, I think, galvanized um, a much more robust uh, response by both France and the West um, uh, from uh, the attacks that, uh, that transpired in Paris. I mean, 130 people that were yeah. killed, yeah. Um, uh, over 400 people that were wounded, 100 of them critically. I mean, this, is a, um, this was the greatest uh, mass killing in Europe since the Madrid train bombings in uh, 2004. Yeah. You know, um, we've almost become complacent, somewhat complacent now. Or it appears that way, that there hasn't been a massive terror attack. And just think back to the mood in Canada when two of our members of our military were murdered uh, in two days. And and then think of 130 people being murdered, 400 more, as you say, being wounded, some 100 of them critically. The response in the country must have been just on the ragged edge of emotional survival. But we've become a little complacent. Now, there was the, the attack in Norway a few days ago. But how concerned should we all still be about the existing, I don't want to scare people, but threat of terror? Yeah, I think the this... Uh, uh, it was it was a galvanizing moment uh, for jihadi salafist inspired uh, violence, I think, and sort of the realization just how global this phenomenon is. Um, in the same way that the Christchurch attacks, I think, were a realization of the extent that uh, right wing violent extremism posed on a on a global scale. Um, and the uh, I mean, the response by France was a response that ultimately led to uh, the suspension of the rule of law of certain constitutional provisions. Uh, people could be arrested, uh, detained, arrested um, without warrant under a state of emergency that ultimately lasted three months. Um, and uh, a deployment, a military deployment uh, that lasted for years afterwards uh, in terms of the internal security posture. And that also affected us all because it meant that one of the more capable NATO members a significant portion of their armed forces um, were not available, uh, for instance, when it came to um, uh, issues such as Russian deterrence. It's one of the reasons why Canada ended up taking um, the, uh, the framework nation mission uh, in Latvia because there were only a couple of countries around with headquarters experience um, that were not otherwise engaged. And, and France would have likely taken that mission um, if it hadn't been engaged in in Africa and with its domestic uh, with its domestic mission, and so I think it reminds us that um, having effective and 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 robust intelligence services, uh, rather than being a threat to our freedoms, that if we if we're not uh, effectively postured and we can't uh, detect, deter, intercept uh, these types of plots early on. Uh, it can lead to a fairly significant suspension of uh, of the rule of law and of our, of our constitutional rights. And I think in, in France, it certainly ignited a very significant debate because uh, 
um, people realized that uh, that perhaps the balance that France had struck um, was still not entirely adequate relative to the uh, to the security posture. Um, and ultimately, um, we can't uh, let people. This was not just a statement of violence; it was a political statement. Uh, about the ability of uh, groups to have a global reach right back to our capitals with the intent of making a political point. Um, and I think we need to show ourselves resilient um, against this type of, uh, of, of coercion um, yes. by uh, extremists. Do you think there is, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. We have these conferences, people get a little caviar, a little wine into them, and then they make pronouncements. I'm being cynical. And, uh, and then... Over time, the commitment fades. What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, to make the segue from our previous conversation, just like I think there wasn't an, a full commitment against the Islamic State initially, and these were other people's problems, I think there's a, uh, there's a sense still among a significant part, I think, of the Canadian population that Ukraine is really not Canada's problem. These are problems that are far away, and we don't realize the global implications uh, of what's transpiring here. And at this point, Ukraine is entirely reliant uh, on the NATO alliance and on partners. Uh, Ukraine is running out of munitions for their Soviet area weapons. Uh, they don't have their own fuel anymore because Russia has shot up uh, their refineries. Uh, and so this isn't just about uh, making sure that uh, Ukraine can defend itself. This is very much about a question about keeping Ukraine in the fight and the obligation of, that NATO has, and that Na the role that NATO has been playing in coordinating uh, military equipment. Uh, NATO has a coordinating cell where um, Ukraine places requests for equipment, and then that coordinating cell looks at who might be able to provide what and on what sort of timeline. Uh, and the supply chains, that uh, because it's not just about people making announcements about getting equipment there is also making sure um, that Russians are, of course, actively targeting those supply chains. So making sure we can actually get that equipment into Ukraine safely so it can be deployed effectively against Russia. And I'm concerned that many of the announcements that we've made have been largely performative for Western politicians so that uh, they can look to their own populations like they're doing what they're doing enough. But look, I mean, the, the commitments made, I think we have sort of three uh, three broad blocks within NATO. There's the Eastern European new NATO member countries that are all in, um, but of course have very limited resources themselves. There's the US-UK alliance that sees this as an opportunity to weaken Russia and the threat that Russia poses, not just to Ukraine, but to its entire periphery. But then much of Western Europe, uh, as well as Canada, seems to me reluctant. They would much prefer a ceasefire, perhaps at any cost, um, and to stop the uh, to stop the fighting here, and I think this is very much about making sure we enable Ukrainian sovereignty. That it should never be up to us to decide when the Ukrainians may cut a deal or when the Ukrainians uh, may decide they agree on a ceasefire with Russia. It is up to us to enable the Ukrainians to defend themselves until the Ukrainians themselves decide that they are in a position where they are prepared uh, to negotiate a peace deal or to negotiate a ceasefire. And so I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about that, uh, uh, that uh, there is much more that can um, and, and needs to be done and the real reluctance by Western politicians that are seeing war fatigue among their populations that uh, realize their populations are unhappy about the increase in their gas prices. You pay uh, yeah. about a third more today yeah. than you did the yeah, day exactly. before the invasion uh, for your gas. And so I think I don't see enough 
from from Western politicians and from our own prime minister in explaining to Canadians uh, the importance of staying the course and of incurring, uh, if necessary, significant cost um, uh, to uh, defend what is not just Ukrainian interests, but Canadian interests. Yeah, I mean, keeping Ukraine in the fight may keep us out of the fight. And uh, they, they should fundamentally understand that. Now, Canada's capability to contribute more, uh, and we can't really meet our own defense requirements. We, we're, you know, we're still muttering about Navy supply ships. Well, the only one we have is the MV Asterix, which was uh, brought in on time and on budget by Admiral Mark Norman, who then faced the wrath of uh, Justin Trudeau. And uh, so, I mean, we, we know that story well. The CF-18 antiques, which would, you know, be target practice for fifth-generation fighters, like the equivalents of the F-35 from Russia and China. So this is all serious business. And and, and so what's your, I mean, what you, you understand, NATO, you know these people. You understand the politicians better than the rest of us and what their likelihood is of action is. Are they going to provide just enough to create the headline that says we're doing enough and maybe be slowly, gradually just decreasing, eroding Ukraine's capability to keep on fighting the Russians? Yeah, so I think let's look at sort of the commitment, right? So the United States made a commitment of two F-35 squadrons that are being deployed to the UK. Why F-35s? Because they're the only fighter jet um, in the besides the F-22, which is not for sale, um, that is able to defeat uh, Russian air defenses. So if we had the F-35... Canada could have, for instance, provided one of those squadrons and the United States could have kept that other squadron for other problems in the world or deter China. Uh, and so it means that, yes, it's great that, th that the United States is stepping up with army, military and, um, and more maritime capabilities in Europe. But let's remember that those are all capabilities that are not uh, available to uh, contain China. And it's very clear from the new NATO strategic concept uh, that the collusion between Moscow and Beijing in terms of uh, undermining the international rules-based order, the weaponization of international law uh, is a common concern uh, for us all. And I think the division of labor is still very much that Europe ultimately has, America, has an America problem uh, insofar as that it is too heavily dependent on America for its defense and, so, uh, and security. So, Christian, I have... Europe, and Europe has a Canada problem because Canada needs to provide energy security, and that's a conversation the Prime Minister is not prepared to have. Exactly. Well, look, so, so here we are. We have exactly one minute left. In your, <laughs> you explain to Canadians why why we why we need to care about this. I know you just did, but in 67, 60 seconds, give us the cut down version. Canada ultimately needs to make sure it uh, it learns its lessons from the first half of the twentieth century. Um, where we committed robustly to international institutions and the international rules that ultimately made us the secure, prosperous, stable continent that we are and that is so highly desired by everybody else in the world who would like to immigrate here. And so we need to remind ourselves how we ultimately got here. And so this naive isolationism of pretending that sort of we can just withdraw uh, is not just bad in terms of our own interests in international security. It also diminishes our role internationally because it means we might have a seat at the table, but we're not going to be heard and we can't influence um, the key international decisions at NATO, at the G7 and elsewhere if we're not making real contributions with real capabilities, which diminishes our voice and diminishes our 
vulnerability in terms of foreign affairs to assert, uh, to assert our interests. And so I'm deeply concerned about the obsolescence that Canada is increasingly facing uh, in international affairs, which is bad for the world and it's really bad for Canada. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.